Good morning, Gallery Church. Welcome to Church Online. Thank you so much for joining us here. As we enter into our gathering, let's take a moment to pause together and be still. Breathe slowly and center our scattered senses on God's presence this morning. Please say this short prayer with me. Father in heaven, we come to you today of all days with fresh hope. Speak to us now as we spend this time with you and let the reality of your resurrection dispel despair and reawaken the love song of our life in and for you. Amen. Yes, Lord Jesus, reawaken our love song for you today. If you are new to our church, welcome. We are so thankful that you are here. At any time during this gathering, if you need prayer, you can open up our app or and click the prayer tab, or you can email us at prayer at gcbdowntown.com. You're also invited to join us for Zoom lingering time. The link is in the description on whatever platform you're watching this video. If you're watching during the 10.30 premiere, the Zoom link will be live today at 12.15 after the benediction in our live gathering. This will be our first attempt to join a live audience with our online viewers, and it should be exciting, so we hope you can join. And before we move forward in today's worship, let's enter into a time to focus on generosity. It is so important that we keep the character of our Father in Heaven in front of us, as well as His will for our lives. He has displayed generosity, and we should desire to follow in His example. So please join me now in our generosity prayer. Father in Heaven, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. To spend everything on myself and give without sacrifice is the way of the world, and in that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds. Who withstanding the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world? I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous to me. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to the world. I would like to encourage you now to take a moment to give. You can give through the app or online at gcbdowntown.com slash giving. Take care and have a blessed Sunday. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday. One of the traditional Easter greetings is, He is risen! He is risen indeed! We practice saying, Hallelujah! Our faith in Jesus is rooted in the empty tomb and the victory this won over sin and death. Somehow, this has been filtered down into a simple belief that Christians go to heaven and everyone else doesn't. Today, we want to see the power in the resurrected Jesus. So we will attempt to look at what Jesus taught on hell and who is actually in it. We're searching for truth and inspiration for how we talk about Jesus as Lord of all, and we must help people see the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not God who is hostile, but we, for God is never hostile. John Chrysostom, Early Church Father, 347 to 414 AD. He is good, and he only bestows blessings 
and never does harm. Thus, to say that God turns away from the wicked is like saying that the sun hides itself from the blind. St. Anthony When hate wins, hell is inevitable. Brian Zond We love because he first loved us. John, the Beloved Disciple Well, happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. And there's so much uh, repetitiveness in the scriptures when we're talking about the glory of God. And today there's really no reason for us not to rediscover our repetitive voice of praise. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this time together with you uh, because it is Easter Sunday. Um, I'm recording this on on Tuesday leading up to Easter Sunday, and I am looking forward to having an opportunity not only to share this with you uh, on YouTube and Facebook, but with those of you that have registered uh, to be in person at either 9 or, ele- or at 11 a.m. on Easter Sunday. So let me just jump right in because I know that time is really important. And if you are a guest that has been invited into this, um, I welcome you. I am honored that you would listen in on this Easter Sunday uh, to hear what I have to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why I think it's good news. Um, so let me just start with that. What does, what does the resurrection, why do we say he is risen and respond with he is risen indeed? And what does that mean? And why is that good news? Uh, what good has actually come from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If it was such a powerful event and if it was good for everyone, Why are we not seeing more fruit of it in the world? And why are so many pastors, not just today, but in the past and in days to come, going to use hell as the motivation to get you to believe in Jesus Christ? There's so many things that are said and done by people like me that we're going to be held accountable for and have done really good things and done not so good things. And I know that one of these days I'm going to have to give an account for everything that I've taught. And in this particular subject matter, I am grateful that I believe that our father in heaven has already started to deal with me now, because what I'm about to say to you today is something that I don't think I would have said to you 25 years ago. The issue Much like Jesus's conversations with the Pharisees, the issue is that you and I don't see ourselves as sinners in need of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew going into Good Friday and going to his death, he knew that his death was going to settle our path to destruction by taking that destruction onto himself. Jesus knew going into Good Friday, what he was about to do was going to be taking upon himself the path that you and I are currently on or have been on in our life. Because here's the deal. We are sinners. There is no discussion. We're sinners. He is the Savior. That's a fact that I believe and is a fact that I hope that you come to believe. And sin is what is killing us and is killing this world. And I, and, and the, the quicker that you and I come to understand this, I think the more effective you and I are going to be in our lives. Sin is what is destroying the beautiful world that God loves and that God has called good. The floods in Nashville. I believe, are because sin is in the world. The world was never designed to destroy itself. The world was never designed to take life. And it's been the infiltration of sin that you and I, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, have brought into this world that is killing creation. Sin destroys our relationship, as I talked about, with the world around us. Sin destroys relationships between each other. And sin destroys our relationship with God. And I love what Fleming Rutledge says. Um, 
She is one of my favorite uh, ministers, um, and she's written some phenomenal books that have encouraged me. And this is what she actually has said. Sin is mankind's essential illness. It is a condition we are all heirs to. I want to stop there. It is a condition that we are all heirs to. There is nothing you and I can do to avoid it. We are heirs to it. It is a demonic power that enslaves us and binds us and prevents us from being either free or good. We are responsible before God for sin, and yet we are unable to liberate ourselves from its grip. We are in a desperate situation, deserving of God's wrath and marked out for his judgment. Each of us, and I agree with what she's saying here. But let me try to summarize it because this isn't necessarily the full point of my teaching. I want to get to that, but I believe this lays a foundation for why there's been so much misunderstanding and so much confusion. And in my opinion, the reason why people don't want to pursue God through the church today, sin is ripping on us, like tearing us apart. And it is sending a ripple effect through generations of our families. The decisions that I make today, if sinful, will impact my children, most likely my children's children and my children's children's children to the fourth generation. The scriptures talk about that. The issue is today, you and I don't think about that anymore. We will use the word sin to describe our favorite dessert, our sinfully chocolate sundae. But when it comes to a offense to one another, a, a, I'm sorry, I messed up. I, I, it's not, I've sinned against you. It's a man, you know, it was, it, it was, it wasn't intended. It, I'm sorry that hurt you. We have a hard time using the word sin for things other than the desserts of our choice. Sin is doing all of this ripple effect, all of this pain. And I believe part of the reason in our generation why we're having a hard time talking about sin is because pastors like me and evangelists and others have boiled down everything Jesus taught and made the invitation for you to believe in him by saying something as simple as pray this prayer so you can go to heaven and leaving out everything else that Jesus seemed to have to say, because it has just been about you and I saying a prayer that is the perfect prayer that covers us so that we can spend eternity with God in heaven. Then we can take a deep breath and go back to our lives because pastors have told us, if you don't say this prayer, you will burn for eternity in a place of torment forever with no reprieve. So this is why I believe on Easter Sunday, that the resurrection matters, the understanding of the resurrection matters. But even so, you and I need to understand that what Jesus had to say matters and what he did with his life on the cross and resurrecting that matters because what he was saying to you and I is, I have done something for you, so now live And I want us to begin to get to that. So let me start out with where I've come from. Over 25 years ago, I actually um, would use hell as a motivation to try to get people to trust in God. I actually participated in college in an event around Halloween that would depict in multiple different scenes going through a house ways in which people would face death drug overdoses, car accidents, murder, um, accidental death, all these different things would be portrayed in the best of our artistic and creative and fake blood and chainsaws without, um, without teeth in them and without the chain around it, all this kind of stuff, just to scare people enough to say, oh my goodness, I could die. And then when they come through the event, they would get it offered. They would be invited into these small tents or small rooms where we would, for 60 seconds, tell them, you need to believe in Jesus because if you die before you pray this prayer, you will spend eternity in torment. And it was our joy in watching people raise their hand saying, I prayed that prayer. And then at best, we would try to get their name, address, and phone number so we could follow up with them. But as a communicator, we were just happy 
to see those hands go up or we could say out of the 10 people, three raised their hand this time or seven raised their hand. At the end of the night, we would celebrate the fact that out of 5,000 people that went through this event, we had 700 people raise their hand and say they prayed a prayer to secure their eternity in heaven. So much so that I actually, in my first job in ministry, I took that event and I took it to the first church where we served. And we actually didn't walk through a house. We created a path through the woods where we we did the exact same thing and celebrated the very same thing. So for most of my life, the way that I viewed this particular subject matter of does God send people to hell was summarized this way, and it should be on the screens for you. Christians go to heaven where they enjoy peace in streets of gold, while everyone else goes to hell where they are tortured forever. Now, I know this is going to be a very heavy com- a heavy subject matter, but when we get to the end, we're going to understand the resurrection and we are going to want to shout hallelujah. But I, I need us to deal with this because I believe there are a lot of atheists in this world today because they saw through this. They didn't see Jesus. They saw the human heart and how sin is even impacting pastors and the way we communicate and our motivation and the way that the church at times can be sinful and hasn't walked with integrity to the image of Jesus Christ. But I grew up thinking that Christians went to heaven and everybody else went to hell. And so over a decade leading up to planting this church or these, this church family or these and building relationships with other churches in Baltimore, I wrestled with this. It didn't sit well in my soul. I believed that there was something else that I needed to discover. And I felt paralyzed at, at, at being able to communicate like who went to hell and who goes to heaven and, and what does that mean in regards to Easter and resurrection? And so there were a lot of Sundays where when I get around to Easter, I still struggle to step fully into it. And I'm really hopeful that today is the day that you and I can discover the joy of the Lord and the good news of God to the world through Jesus Christ. Because to me, this mentality of just Christians go to heaven and everybody else goes to hell did not prove to me. And I was not convinced that I could convince others that that was a God of love, which we've just spent seven weeks talking about the misperception of an angry and violent God in the world and how Jesus came to say, no, God is love. Look at how I am teaching you and living in front of you about God and and God's love. And so God's love challenged me to go and say, well, what did Jesus actually say about the afterlife? What did he actually say about hell? And did he give us any information about who actually goes and how they end up getting there? And so today is a day that I want to step into this. And I want to get, I want to start out with giving you two individuals that, um, I was really drawn to in preparation of this uh, because these were two individuals that had an impact on my life. But under my old belief system that only Christians go to heaven and everybody else goes to hell, these two particular individuals would fall into the latter category. And that both of them are Jewish people. Uh, one of them is Abraham Joshua Heschel and the other is Anne Frank. Anne Frank was a world famous German born diarist and a World War II Holocaust victim. I mean, she did not survive. Her work, The Diary of Anne Frank, has been read by millions of people. So let me give you a background on her just in case you need a little refreshing or you've never heard of her. Fleeing the Nazi persecution of Jews, her family moved from Amsterdam and later had to go into hiding for two years. During this time, Anne Frank wrote about her experiences and her wishes. She was known for saying things like this. I'm going to give you three examples. First one's on the screen. No one has ever become poor by giving. That was a quote attributed to Anne in her diary. How much, excuse me, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Wow, powerful words coming from a child. The last quote, the best remedy for those who are afraid, lonely, or unhappy is to go outside somewhere where they can be quite alone with the heavens, nature, and God. 
Man, these were three powerful things that she said of to- uh, that I just picked out of hundreds of things that I could have given as an example. But in 1945, her family was finally found and sent to a concentration camp where Anne Frank died at the age of 15. Now, let me give you an example. Let me talk to you about another, um, what I believe is just a prominent, influential person to me. It was a man by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was a Polish-born rabbi, a theologian, philosopher, and a social activist who worked with Martin Luther King Jr. Heschel's writings and work on the Old Testament has been influential amongst many of the Christian theologians that you might be reading today. I know he's impacted me in his writings on the prophets and on the Old Testament and the story of Israel have been life-giving to me and have cast light into God's story through the nation of Israel. And his work by many has been credited with showing him to be a thoroughly God-saturated soul. I mean, that's the way people have described him, a God-saturated soul, a kind and wise sage of the highest order is what people have said about this man. And one of his most famous public moments was when he, after encouraging other rabbis and other pastors to join up with Dr. Martin Luther King on the Edmondson Pettus Bridge in Salem, Alabama. And this is what he said after he marched with Dr. King on that bridge. This is a quote. Now listen to this, man. Would this, could this happen for us as a church as we walk the streets of Baltimore? Listen to what he said about that experience. I felt my legs were praying. Wow. That's powerful. So Heschel, as a child, barely escaped the fires of Altruich, the ovens that were there. He, in his family were able, or where some of his family were able to leave and get out of Germany at the right time. But his mother was murdered by the Nazis. His two sisters died in Nazi concentration camps. So he felt the sting of death as a young man going into rabbinic ministry. So according to the way that I was taught, the way that I grew up underneath the people that were telling me the good news of Jesus Christ, Christians are in heaven and everyone else is in hell. That would mean that Anne Frank was in hell. That would mean that two years of her living in fear and hiding from Hitler's Nazis parties in an attic, two years of journaling her life and then getting, uh, being put into a concentration camp and dying at 15 years of age and living through hell on earth. She would then stand before Jesus and he would look at her and say, I know your life on earth was hell, but because you didn't pray a simple prayer of belief in me by naming me, I'm sorry, but you are now going to have to burn in hell for eternity where there is no end and you will live forever in that. That would mean that Abraham Joshua Heschel, who escaped the fires of Hitler himself, that had watched his family murdered by the Nazis, would escape the fire that God was stoking for those who never prayed a prayer of repentance in Jesus's name. So Jews that were burning in hell in this life would have been immediately greeted by God in heaven with the stench of smoke still on their earthly bodies. And then forever, according to the image of Dante, would have been forever grabbed by God and thrown to an eternal lake of fire that would have been a hundred times worse than the ovens in Auschwitz. And let me just say, what is the point of Christians? What is the point of you and I believing that this is the God that loves us, that sent Jesus into the world? How is this an act of love by God, thinking that his vengefulness, his rage against sin is is so strong that even though Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sin, that if you and I were to stand before him and not having prayed a sentence prayer, that he would literally grab us and throw us into an eternal lake of fire. And so this 
cause me to begin to think, what did Jesus actually say about hell and who goes there? What did the New Testament say about who, hell and who goes there? What even hints do we have in the Old Testament about what the Hebrew people believed about the afterlife and what life was like? And so looking at this, these situations and these two particular people, it really caused me to want to go on a journey. So we're going to get to, in just a minute, Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. It's the story of the rich man in Lazarus. And I'm having such a hard time sitting here right now in front of this camera because I just want to get up and show more passion and excitement and move about. And I'm looking forward to the opportunity for us to be able to, in the future, we gather more and more and more of us together. But we're going to get to the rich man in Lazarus in just a minute. But I need to talk about what people believed about death and where people went in the afterlife briefly um, through some words that are in the scriptures before I can get to the rich man in Lazarus. So one of the problems with understanding what is meant by hell is that this tiny little word has been forced to carry so much weight. This little four letter word hell carries so much weight because over the centuries, it has begun to pick up meaning. Like it's like every single generation has added more to it. And if we're not careful and we're so short sighted, we only define it by how much weight it is in our generation. And when you go back and you look at those 300 years that we talked about last week and you study what they said and how they lived, you'll begin to see that we've added so much weight to this word that it is now a burden and it is even driving people away from the church. Hell has become this catch-all word for however you and I want to imagine eternal punishment in afterlife. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. We have made it into a word that is what we would project onto it. And if we're not careful, you and I are going to fall victim to that in our own generation. But the Bible doesn't talk much about the afterlife. There's even a lot of confusion about the book of Revelations and who it was written to and and what it really was for. And we'll get to that in the future. But The Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time on it. The Hebrew portion of our Bible, which the Jewish people would turn to, the Old Testament, the word there is Shaul, which is the word death, the grave, the underworld, the abode of the dead is what this word means. The Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament were fundamentally concerned with life, what you did before you die. That's the Old Testament So I love what C.S. Lewis has to say on the subject. C.S. Lewis says the word translated hell means simply the land of the dead, the state of all the dead, good and bad alike, Shoel. That's how he summarized how he was seeing it. And I believe it's to be true. And look at what Jonah actually said in Jonah chapter two in verse two, as he was crying out, he cried out to the Lord. He says, I cry out to the Lord in my great trouble. And he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, O Lord, and you heard me. This was Shoel, the the Hebrew understanding. And I love this quote by Brian Zahn when he says this over a millennia, Hell has picked up all kinds of popular imagery and common assumptions that get read back into the Bible. This is so true. And when we get to the New Testament, it moves from the word Shoel to the word Hades. And it's replacing that word now. And I love what C.S. Lewis says here as well. He goes on to say, Hades is neither heaven nor hell. It's almost nothing. It's just the place of the dead. Hades, like Shoel, simply refers to a realm of the dead. Revelations chapter 1, 17 and 18. Listen to what it says here. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. And he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death In the grave, Jesus specifically said death in the grave. And we talked about that during our Advent series. He holds the keys to death in the grave. It's only the King James Version and it's and it's variations that actually translates this into hell. All the all all other than the King James translates as hell into either Gehenna or Hades or the the grave and death in the grave. 
But Gehenna is this third word. So Shoel, Hades, and Gehenna are words in the Old and New Testament that we have projected our definition of hell onto. And Gehenna was the valley of Hinnon, south of Jerusalem. Let me tell you about this valley. This valley has a long list, and I'm going to tell you two things about it. The first is, is this is where both the Canaanites and in the future Jews sacrificed their children on fiery altars to the god Melech. Later, about even the time of Jesus, this became the city garbage dump where fires constantly burned. So I'm not saying that Jesus didn't talk about the afterlife. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But you and I take our meaning or our desire for hell to have a different meaning, and we project it onto Shoel, Hades, and Gehenna. And if we're not careful, we will lie to people about what these words in the New Testament actually mean. So for instance, in Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5, let me read this to you. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Like they were literally offering sacrifice in the temple and and Pilate ordered that the soldiers run swords through them. And he says this to the Pharisees, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all other people in Galilee, Jesus asked? Is this why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? I love Jesus up to date on his current events. Were they, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. So is Jesus talking to the Pharisees about hell? My answer is no. We project that onto a passage like this. Jesus is talking about an avoidable threat in their life and in their lifetime. In effect, what Jesus is saying to them by these current events, by the soldiers killing worshipers in the temple and by a tower falling on Jewish people, he's saying, unless you rethink everything, Embrace the way of peace that I am teaching you and abandon your hell-bent desire to fight a violent revolt. You are going to die by Roman swords and collapsing buildings. And guys, let me tell you this. If you look at history, 40 years approximately after Jesus said this, over 500,000 people in and around Jerusalem were either run through by a sword or had buildings or houses or walls fall on them and their lives were taken from them because they wouldn't listen to Jesus and they violently attacked their enemies. So let me consider another avenue of discovery as we look not just at the words that were used in the Old Testament and how hell has taken on such a deep meaning word when it's not was wasn't the original intent. This other aspect is that all evangelistic sermons in Acts never mention hell. They never make an appeal about an afterlife. There's not one of them. You can look at the words that Paul preached, Peter preached, James preached, Stephen preached, other short one-sentence sermons that you might find in the book of Acts. And there is never a sermon or a preacher or an evangelist or anything in the book of Acts that ever says, let me tell you how to go to heaven and not hell when you die. So if that's the case, then they must have missed the gospel because they, they weren't preaching it. There's there obviously something wrong in what they were saying, but that's not true. There must be something wrong in how we're talking about it. They all said that the world has a new king and a new Lord, a crucified and risen Jesus Christ as Lord. That was their message. They extended an invitation. Listen to their invitation. You are invited to believe in this joyful announcement and turn from the destructive ways of your sin, present tense, destructive ways of your sin, and be baptized into a new world where Jesus Christ is Lord. Their invitation was to turn from their sins and how they were living daily so that they could enter into a new kingdom of God then, there and now, following after the ways of Jesus Christ. They preached that those who responded to the gospel by faith and baptism were forgiven of sins and entered into a new citizenship underneath a new king and the rightful Lord of the earth. 
Their gospel was about the arrival of Christ here and now and about hope and resurrection in the age to come. And that's as far as they went. So let's consider one other thing. Actually, two more things. Let me get to the next one. So let's consider what Jesus did say. When Jesus does speak about hell in most extensively in two particular parables, one we're going to get to in a minute, the rich man and Lazarus and the sheep and the goats. He's making a point, and I'm going to summarize this because we don't have time to get into all of the teaching, and I want you to be able to read this this week in your growth communities to decide and to seek the Spirit and in agreement with your discussion with one another if the the point of my teaching and the, the way in which I'm revealing this to you today is right and true. The summary of the sheep and goats is it is the wicked who end up being condemned. That is the summary of the sheep and goats. The wicked are by definition, those that live wicked life's lives and inflict evil upon others. That was what was talked about in the parable of the sheep and goats. Jesus does use terms here that say all of humanity, excuse me, Jesus does not. I need to make sure I edit that. Jesus does not say in terms, all of humanity except those who accept Jesus into their hearts. He doesn't say the wicked are non-Christians. He just says wicked, which goes on to say later on where he says, some people will actually say, Lord, Lord, but they won't enter into my kingdom. Now, is that about hell or is that about the present kingdom? And I believe there's a lot of present tense to this. Another quick perspective, life is not an elaborate testing center. God isn't up there giving us a test that we can't pass so that he could grab us by the shirt collar and the belt and throw us into a lake of fire and, and, and have a maniacal laugh while he's doing it. Life is a gift from God, but life as the gift of God is supposed to be properly lived by loving God and loving people, loving neighbors. And as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, our enemies fall into that neighbor category. So our life in obedience to God into the obedience to Jesus is living, loving God and loving others. Anything outside of that, we might fall into a wicked category. Second Corinthians 5.10 says this is on the screen for you. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil that we have done in this earthly body. Nowhere in this passage does Paul say that that judgment is eternally burning forever. In John 5, 28 and 29, don't be surprised indeed. The time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's son and they will rise again. All. Did you catch that? All. And I had a professor in college that used to say, when you come to the word all and you want to define it, all means all. And that's all all will ever mean. And so you and I need to understand there's a come a day when Jesus is going to speak and all the graves are going to be opened up. And those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. So I want you to note this. Jesus does not say that those who have done evil will be tortured eternally. All he says is that they will face judgment of condemnation. We have no idea what that means. We We have no idea what the righteous judge is going to do. And we also need to understand a lot of the wrong thinking about hell is the result of reading into the text what is not actually there. So here in the parable of the sheep and goats, we find that this parable shows that Jesus is not strictly speaking about the afterlife judgment. According to Jesus, the coming of the son of man is not an event postponed, but it is something that is immediate that they're going to be seeing. On the night that he was arrested, he even said to Caiaphas that he would witness it. So Caiaphas is gone. So he obviously witnessed this coming of Jesus into his kingdom. 
And during his trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus claimed to be the son referred to in Daniel chapter seven, the son of man, the human ruler who is the alternative to the beast of empires. That Jesus was the alternative to the abuse of nations in the world. This is what he's confessing to the Sanhedrin. So when Jesus, and I believe this is key, says that he's the son of man, that he was vindicated by God in the resurrection. And this is what makes the resurrection such an exciting and good thing that we shouldn't just celebrate on Easter, but every time we gather. All God-given authority on heaven and earth was given to Jesus. The nations were given a Christ-informed way that they could follow him. And he described it and outlined it so perfectly in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And according to the sheep and goats parable, as the kingdom of God was prepared for you from the foundations of the world, that this is what God had intended since the foundation of the world was to be able to have Jesus as king and us live in his kingdom under his ways. That's been intended. But if the nations reject the ways of Jesus, it leads them to eternal fire. Matthew 25, 41, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So he's saying, if you and I follow into these ways, especially as groups of people like a nation, there is going to be eternal. There is an eternal fire that has been prepared. So this imagery of hell, where Dante gets a lot of his imagery from, but also the pagan religions, we don't have time for all that. But the nations in the parable were rejecting Jesus. So Jesus teaches us that the nations that care for the impoverished, the infirm, the immigrant, and the imprisoned enter into his kingdom. While those nations who ignore the least of these on the earth are on a path to a smoldering Gehenna with the devil and his angels. So what does Jesus not say in the sheep and goats parable? He he. He does not say that the sheep and the goats are divided on the basis of who has or who has not said a sinner's prayer. In my opinion, unfortunately, I believe that people have mixed up and misread some of the things, myself included, some of the things that Paul has said and has been used either to ignore or evade what Jesus taught about the priority of loving our neighbors as ourselves being the criteria for our judgment. You and I are going to be judged by the way that we love others and the ways in which we show love to our neighbors, including our enemy. That's what we're going to give an account for when we stand before Jesus. Jesus taught the golden rule. Do unto others, you have them do unto you. And I believe that he even amped that up to his disciples by saying, love others as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus actually went on to say that this is a narrow path, a narrow gate. The narrow gate is not a sinner's prayer, but a life of love and mercy. This narrow path, this narrow gate is a path of love and mercy. And it's not just us condensing things down into a prayer that then sets us secure for all eternity. The way of self-interest that exploits the weak is the wide road. Like it is so easy to become so selfish It is so easy for you and I to use everything that we have and everything we own for ourselves and ourselves only that that path has been made so easy in this world. It is going to be so easy for us to follow that and how we've seen other nations follow that. And if we're not careful, that type of life is going to lead to our destruction. It is a wide road that leads to this type of life in a narrow one that leads to life, an abundant life that Jesus Christ talked about. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, 12 through 14, verse 21 on the screen for you. Do to others what, whatever you would like them to do to you. This, in, this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. If you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate, The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. The many who choose that way. But the gate to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my father in heaven will enter. Nothing about a prayer, only about us doing the will of the father in heaven. We must understand that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about an afterlife kingdom. 
He is talking about a this life kingdom. I love the way Brian Zod defines it. He says the kingdom of God is God's government of God. That's what I I want you to get. The kingdom of God is the government of God. Like Jesus is king. It's his government. It's his way. We follow after a king. And that king establishes the way that people interact in the kingdom. That is the kingdom of God now. The Sermon on the Mount tells us what that life looks like. It's important that we hold to that. Jesus tells us that it is a hard way to live. So he goes ahead and tells us, you're like, look, you read the Sermon on the Mount. This is hard. Jesus says, yes, I told you it was going to be hard because it's against every other kingdom in this world. And the ways that he viewed those kingdoms, whether Old Testament or new, were beasts that look to steal, kill and destroy like the evil one. Because we are addicted to ourselves, it's hard to be on this narrow road. It is hard for people of wealth. You can look at the story in Luke 18 about the camel and the eye of the needle. It's so hard for those of us that have resources to stay in the kingdom or on the way of the kingdom. So many rich people that met Jesus in the gospels walked away because it's hard to give up the, the things that we think are worth something in this life. No one can serve two masters is what Jesus said in Luke 16. You can you cannot serve God and money. You can only serve one. So now the final, finally getting there, Luke 16, I'm finally getting to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus because this these words about you can't serve God and money were what launched the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And because of the length, again, I'm going to leave it to you to read later, but I want to summarize the parable for us. This is spoken in response to how the Pharisees saw their health and their wealth as signs of God's favor. And they believed that sickness and poverty were punishments set by God onto people. And I believe Jesus told this story about the rich man for whom every day was a feast and the poor, sick Lazarus who longed for crumbs from the table to help you and I, but specifically to help the Pharisees standing in front of him to see Jesus gives dignity to the poor sick man by naming him Lazarus. And Jesus leaves this prominent, powerful man nameless. Eventually in the parable, both die. Both men, if you read the parable, both men are in the same place, Hades. But for Lazarus, it was a place of comfort. The rich man, it was a place of torment. They were both in death, both experiencing it quite differently. And we see how much the rich man's problem is that he had a disdainful attitude towards Lazarus. Even in death, he was looking down on him and he doesn't even speak to Lazarus, even though he can see them. He goes straight to Abraham and in his place of death, he still views Lazarus as less than inferior to him. We see the rich man has not learned the ways of love. Even in the midst of this death, he is in a loveless state and he has found nothing but torment in his loveless state. The first part of the parable that that starts out with the story is actually an an existing Jewish folktale. There are actually seven variations of it that have been discovered in old writings, but Jesus supplies his own extra to the parable by adding the bit about the five brothers. This was unique. So when he added that, the Pharisees' ears would have perked up because they'd have known the other seven variations most likely, but now Jesus is adding something to it. And I believe he added to it because he wanted the effect to be that he was pulling this story into their present life. He wanted them to understand that the original rabbinic story was that a day would come when there would be a great reversal of situations. That's what the original parable was for. And Jesus is pointing out that the day of great reversal had arrived with him as the coming king of the kingdom of God. The Pharisees who have been mocking Jesus and act in attacking this kingdom, the king of the kingdom, are the five brothers that Jesus has added to the story. The rich man wants Lazarus to to save or to have a message sent to his five brothers. But in Jesus's parable, Abraham says that the brothers have the law and the prophets, and that's enough. The rich man argues that this isn't enough. But if someone were to rise from the dead, resurrection, his brothers would be convinced. And Jesus says, no, this isn't the case. Because the Pharisees 
because they can't be converted by the love, by listening to the law and prophets and by witnessing the sinners that were coming to life in Jesus. Like they were witnessing people come to life and people being healed and coming to vibrant life and the following, the peace of the people following after Jesus. They were seeing all this. He's like, no, they will not be convinced when they see the Messiah raised from the dead on the third day. So here's what I've come to see as the basic teaching of Jesus broken down from the way that I can understand it. And I hope it is helpful to you. Here it is. If you refuse to love, you cannot enter the kingdom of God and you will end up lonely, tormented soul. You will end up as a lonely, tormented soul. That is what I see as Jesus is teaching. If you want to know how to get to hell, follow the path of the rich man is what I believe is happening out of this parable, the rich man and Lazarus. Being a Christian doesn't mean that I have to pray a prayer. Being a Christian means that I am intentionally attempting to follow Jesus Christ as my Lord with all my life. He has access to all of me and I want to follow his will and his ways because he has dealt with my sin. He has removed death for me. It's no longer a concern. He has taken away the sins of the world so that you and I can follow him into his kingdom. So being a Christian means that I can no longer pretend that I don't see a Lazarus lying at my door. Hell is not God's hatred of sinners. I love this. And I think Dante needs to be corrected. God has a single disposition towards sinners. Do you know what it is? Love. God is love. God loves sinners. God is not throwing people into hell. God is begging people to give up themselves so that they don't go the way that leads to the destruction that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is what I believe the love of God, the love of God, the love from God refused. The people that end up in hell are the ones that refuse to love God. All right, so much more to say. And I know that there are probably lots of questions in the post-service Zoom that'll, that will take place after the second service on Easter Sunday. And there'll probably be those of you that are live watching me that will have lots of questions. I'm looking forward to those. And so let me say this to those of you that say, well, is, isn't Jesus the only one that can save? And to that, I just want to say yes and amen. Jesus is the only one who can save. Yes, amen to that. And I want to ask you, who are you and I to tell Jesus who he can and cannot save? Jesus is the one that saves. He's the one that separates sheep and goats. He's the one that can judge nations. He's the one that can judge the human heart. Are you and I going to tell Jesus that he can't save Anne Frank? Are you and I going to tell Jesus that he can't save Abraham, Joshua, Heschel? Are you and I going to say that God can't save people who have never heard the name of Jesus that live in other countries? Are you going to say that we are more blessed and the tower that's falling on them means that they are less blessed or that they're the real sinners? Are we going to be careful that we don't interpret the world like the Pharisees did? Jesus is the Lord and he's asking you and I to help him reconfigure the world into his gracious rule. Since the beginning, the foundation of the world, Jesus has wanted to be king and he's wanting people to follow him in his kingdom and his rule is love. And that's where you and I must follow. That's where we will be judged. Jesus never said that good people were going to be tortured in a fire for all eternity. There is nobody that Jesus talked to, the woman at the well, the woman thrown at his feet, um, Lazarus. Nope, there was no one he met that he said, listen, if you don't believe in me, you're going to burn for eternity in hell. So I want you to know, as a pastor of the Gallery Church, I believe in Jesus with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. And I believe the Father in heaven sent Jesus to us as an act of love. I believe that the spirit that was with Jesus, that got him through the garden, that got him through the beating, that got him while he was on the cross, got him through that, that even gave Jesus the power to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, that got Jesus out of the grave on the third day and resurrected him to new life, that allowed him to walk through walls and that looked his disciples in the face and said, come on, let's get to the mission of letting people know know about the kingdom of God. I believe 
that they set an example of how God relates to sinners as an example of how you and I need to relate to sinners today. You and I need to learn to see ourselves as sinners so we can humbly stay focused on the kingdom of God, realizing that his grace and his mercy and his power is on us. And we are the ones that get a chance to go into the world and say our king is alive. And there is a way that we can live that doesn't lead to death and destruction. God isn't saying with an angry voice to the world every Easter Sunday, turn or burn. He is saying, I have loved you, so love one another. So today, Gallery Church family and those of you that are listening, I'm an honored to be able to share this with you today, but I want you to feel an invitation into this life with me. As sinners forgiven and redeemed, following, letting the Spirit work in us, I want to invite you to join me in this way of living, the way of loving our neighbors and way of loving Lazarus at our door, the way of loving the people that God has placed around us because you are able to join in. So do you believe what I'm saying about Jesus Christ, that he is the expression of God's love for the world, that he's the savior of the world, that he's the true Lord? Do you believe this? Do you want to live in a different type of kingdom under a different type of rule, under a different king than the way the nations of the world have been portraying um, authority. Jesus is the true authority. Do you want to identify with Jesus through baptism? I invite you to that today. I invite you to see that the, that living for yourself and living in sin leads to torment. I want you to hear that today. That is the path that is wide and it is easy for us to get onto. I invite you into Christ and the peace that comes from living in his will and his ways. But this way is hard. It's going to be hard for us as a church to stay steadfast in this. Conflicts will always arise. There's even conflicts now in some of our homes and in some of our relationships amongst people that were once close but are now even more difficult, more distant from one another. We are going to face hardship if we're going to learn to love our enemies and love one another as Christ loved us. It's not always going to be easy, but Jesus promises to be with us every step of the way. He came out of the grave announcing I'm going to be with you and I'm going to make sure that you have the power through the spirit to do what I'm telling you to do now in this life. He's alive and he's with the father and he's communicating to us faith, hope and love through the Holy Spirit. And he's coming again. The Messiah, Jesus Christ was in the ground and he came out resurrected as Lord of all. That is good news for all of us. We need to follow after him. I encourage you to put your trust in that today because how you and I live our lives matters. We will stand before a judgment someday, but we don't have to stand before that judgment in fear. We can stand before it in confidence because you and I can live our lives following Jesus, loving like Jesus, sacrificing like Jesus, giving ourselves to others. And there is no fear in that. Yes, we might suffer, it's gonna be hard, but we do not have to face death with fear. It has no more sting. The resurrection proves it. That is the life that we've been proud. He's gonna speak and we are gonna resurrect. We're gonna stand in front of him. And I want you to join me in hearing him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I pray this is encouraging to you. This is the message that your neighbors need to hear. God loves them and is inviting them to live a life of love for God and love for neighbor. And we can follow Jesus to do it and to do it with all of us, everything, all aspects of us, not being tempted by money, physical things, but to, be follow, to follow after the way of Jesus. I pray this is an encouragement to you. Happy Easter. He is risen. He's risen indeed. We want to invite you to respond to the word of God that we just received. We know that he is speaking and working in our hearts. God is love. God does not hate. Do you feel loved by God? If not, what is getting in the way? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you about this enemy?
We are sinners. We sin. Is this offensive to you? Do you agree that you sin? Why is it so hard for us to name what we do wrong as sin? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Jesus made it clear that how we live matters. Jesus made it clear that he is the king of the kingdom and we need to follow what he says. Are you following him? Are you confident because you prayed a prayer? Or is your confidence in the fact that you are obeying Jesus with your life? Ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you now and help you let go of anything that is keeping you from seeing God's love and being a display of God's love to the enemies in your life. Let's respond to the Holy Spirit, acknowledge His work in us, and celebrate that we are lavishly loved by our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ. Gallery Church family, we have good news to share with people, much like the angels announcing Jesus at His birth. This is good news for great joy, which will be for all people. We need to learn how to share the resurrection of Jesus Christ as good news for all people. And so the only announcement that I have for us today is that we're not exactly sure yet at the time of this recording what our service time is going to be throughout the rest of April. We had two services for in-person at 9 and 11 on Easter Sunday, not not knowing how to anticipate people that would feel comfortable coming back. And based upon how that attendance is recorded, we are going to set a worship service time or times for the Sundays to come. So please be watching for information on those service times. We are also um, wanting to clear up the fact that when you do commit to come to a gathering, when you click the agree to these guidelines, you are clicking that you are aware that you are agreeing to a possible in-person indoor gathering. We are going to try to do as much as we can outside, but we can't promise you that when you come, it's going to be an outdoor gathering. Um, sometimes they are going to be indoors. We are also looking for ways that we can live stream and improve the ways that we're doing this for our brothers and sisters who yet can't return with us in person. And so it's really important that um, we, you ask questions for clarity, but yet we come with a posture of love and service towards one another as we are attempting to do our best. And I am grateful for the medical advisors that have taken their time to encourage me and our elders in what we believe is best. And those guidelines that we have placed is what they feel is best and ways in which we can be safe in our time together. So pay attention. We're not sure yet when our next service is times will be at the time of this recording, but we will be letting you know as soon as possible. So here's our benediction. As we go from here today, May you remember that God is love. May you and I continue to learn how we have put so much into this tiny word hell. May we learn to read the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus without the influence of what we have accumulated on that word. May we see Jesus's words afresh and new. And may you and I grow more and more aware 
that how we live, especially in the way that we love others, especially the way that we love people that are immigrants, infirmed, poor, the people that are on the underside of power, we will be judged by Jesus for that. And may it be said to the gallery church and to the people of Baltimore, well done, my good and faithful servants. How we live in Christ according to his, his will and way matters. The resurrection was an announcement of a new Lord. Let's follow him. May God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you guys so much. After the 11 o'clock service, we're going to be doing an in-person and a Zoom combination post-lingering time. So if you're watching this online and you want to set an alarm to go off around 12, look at the link and join us. There's a waiting room. Depending on the time of the service, you may have to wait a few minutes, but we will be joining you to the in-person questions and response time together where we're also going to be taking the Lord's table together. Hopefully you can join us. God bless.